In Jesus' precious name, amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. You may be seated. I'm going to start this morning in Mark chapter 4. Beginning in verse 1, it says, And he began again to teach by the seaside, and there was gathered unto him a great multitude, so that he entered into a ship and sat in the sea, and the whole multitude was by the sea on the land. And he taught them many things by parables, and said unto them in his doctrine, Hearken, behold, there went out a sower to sow, and it came to pass as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and the fowls of the air came and devoured it up. And some fell on stony ground where it had not much earth, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of earth. But when the sun was up, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked it, and it yielded no fruit. And the other fell on good ground and did yield fruit that sprang up and increased, and brought, some, and brought forth some thirty, and some sixty, and some a hundred. And he said unto them, He that has ears to hear, let him hear. And when he was alone, they that were about him with the twelve asked of the parable. And he said unto them, Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done by parables, that seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. And he said unto them, Know ye not this parable? And how then will you know all parables? The sower soweth the word. And these are they by the wayside where the word is sown. But when they have heard, Satan comes immediately and takes away the word that was sown in their hearts. And these are they likewise which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves, and so endure but for a time. Afterward, when affliction or persecution arises for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. And these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word. And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and the lusts of other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And these are they which are sown on good ground, such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixty, and some a hundred. Now, there's a lot of things that we can identify and talk about and teach from this parable. But I just want to use it as kind of a foundation, a starting point maybe. It says, Jesus said two things about this parable. He said, if you don't know this one, you won't know any of the others. Know ye not this parable? How then will you know the others? There's a principle concerning this parable that is the key to understanding anything and everything about what Jesus taught whenever he used parables. The other thing I want you to notice is it says, through the knowledge of this parable, we can understand the mysteries of the kingdom of God. I want to hit the high spots of this because I don't want to spend the whole time on this parable, which we could very easily. But there's a, there's a couple of things I want you to recognize. First and foremost, I want you to realize that this parable is teaching us one certain specific Bible truth, a foundational truth. 
It's a landmark principle. A vital principle of Jesus' doctrine. And that is this. What you get from God depends more on you than it does him. When he talks about the, the results of the seed planted in these different types of ground, the ground he's talking about is people. And you can be any kind of people you want to be. You may be the wayside to start with, but you can turn yourself into good ground. But it's up to you. And this is one of the great, I hate to say secret truths, because it's not intended to be a secret. But it's something that the, the majority of the, of the body of Christ seems to ignore. They're either uninformed or they're unwilling to accept it. And that is, just as we said before, what you get from God depends on you. Now, if we put it in context, the Bible says Jesus died for the world. He was slain from the foundations of the world. He died for the sins of the world, right? Well, does that mean everybody is saved? It means everybody can be saved. But whether or not someone takes hold of salvation, and by that we mean forgiveness of sins, which is what most of the people in the body of Christ think Jesus did and the only thing that Jesus did for us. That's certainly not true, but forgiveness of sins is a, is a big part of it. It's just not all of it. So we know when we see from the scripture that the things that Jesus accomplished, the things that Jesus paid for, he paid for for everyone. Well, then why doesn't everybody have it? Because man decides what he will take hold of. As individuals, we've been given authority in this earth. You've been given authority over your own life. What you take hold of, what you receive, has more to do with you than it does God because God's already done the work. If somebody came to the altar to get saved, Jesus doesn't have to shed any more blood. His blood's already shed. The price has already been paid. And the Bible is real clear about how to take hold of what Jesus did. In Romans chapter 10, in verse 8, it says, But what saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thy heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. And then he goes on to say that it's confession. It's believing that God raised Jesus from the dead and confessing him as Lord and Savior with your mouth. That's what brings us into salvation. In other words, that's what brings us into the, or helps us enter into the kingdom of God. But that's determined by us, not by God. Now, not everybody in the body of Christ agrees with that. A lot of people are of the opinion that God picks and chooses who he will save and who, who goes to heaven and who goes to hell. That God's picking favorites. Well, if that's the case, then it can't be true, the scripture that we just referred to, Jesus couldn't have been slain from the foundations of the earth to die for the sins of everybody. He would just have died for the sins of the ones that God chose to be saved. Well, that can't be true. We know that Jesus paid the price for everybody. And so it's available. Everything Jesus did 
makes available the blessings of God in, in their entirety and in their fullness for anybody who will take hold of it. So when Jesus said, unto you it's given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God, this word mystery is in, interesting because it does mean secret. But it goes even further than that. It, means not, it doesn't mean a secret that nobody knows. It means a secret that only those who are initiated know. In other words, there are groups like the Masons and there are fraternities and sororities on college campuses that have an initiation ritual or an initiation process. And when someone goes through that initiation process, then they become privy to information that not everybody, is, uh, not everybody else has and that nobody outside of that particular group is supposed to have. Well, the Bible tells us that the body of Christ is that way. The family of God is like that. Once we come into the family of God, we gain access to information that not everybody else has. We gain access, or it's intended that we would gain access to information that the unsaved can't take part in or can't see. Now notice also when Jesus is asked by the disciples about the meaning of this parable. I want you to notice something else he said. We'll start again in verse 11. Unto you it is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. That's that word mystery that I just referred to. Secrets that only the initiated would know or understand. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. That seeing they may see and not perceive, and hearing they may hear and not understand, lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Now folks, I know this is hard for a lot of people to accept. But the fact is, God knows everybody doesn't want in. He knows not everybody wants to be a part of his family. The Bible says that Jesus came to the earth as a light that shined in the darkness. But much of mankind chose the darkness over the light. And so God doesn't try to make it as easy as he can for you or I or anybody else to understand these things, these truths that will change their lives and put them over in life. Now, again, that's hard for people to accept because most people have the idea that God is the loving Father, which He is, thank God He is, and that He just wants the best for everybody, and He's so loving, He's so merciful, He just drops everything that's good on people. Well, we know that's not true. If He was going to drop anything on people, He would drop salvation on them. If God was in the business of doing it Himself, then He'd just make everybody get saved. Well, why doesn't he do that? Because he doesn't have authority in your life. He can't force salvation on somebody that doesn't want it. Now think about what that means. That means the human will, the will of the individual, is greater than the power of God to save. Now God wants everybody to be saved. First Timothy chapter 2 says that God would have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. 
He wants everybody to be saved, and that's why he made a way for salvation to be taken hold of by everybody if they will. But he's smart enough to know that everybody won't. And so what does he do? Well, according to this scripture that we just read, he puts truth out there for people that are willing to dig, people that are willing to look past their circumstance or the physical realm and take hold of the truth that Jesus taught. Have you ever noticed that there's no place in the epistles, the letters written to the church where it talks about parables? Jesus spoke in parables to a great degree, but God's not talking in parables anymore. He speaks clearly to his family. He speaks clearly to you and I. So when we see that these parables identify the difference in the types of people, it tells us the difference between the the wayside where the seed was sown, the stony ground, the good ground. When we see these different types of ground, the parable doesn't identify how we can go from one to another. But the epistles do. We know that faith is the only way to take hold of what Jesus has done for us. The Bible's real clear on that. The way we take hold of and partake of salvation in every respect is by faith. But the New Testament, the letters to the churches, are very specific about how this faith works. Jesus wasn't. Now think what Jesus has done. He just told the most important thing that you can know about the kingdom of God, which first and foremost is, as we said, what you have from God depends more on you than it does him. And then secondly, since the sower sows the word and the way that the word is sown is by the words of our mouths, He identifies that the single most important principle of the kingdom of God, the very mystery of how the kingdom of God works, is that you set the boundaries for what you will have by your own words. Now Jesus said this clearly in Mark 11, the last week of his time here on the earth. He identified this thing called faith. In Mark eleven twenty three. he said, Whosoever shall say unto the mountain, Be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but shall believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass. He shall have whatsoever he saith. So here Jesus reveals to his disciples and to us that this mystery of the kingdom of God operates by the words that we speak based on what we believe in our heart. Again, man has the authority on the earth. It is just as Genesis 1.26 tells us, God said, let us make man in our own image, after our own likeness, and let them have authority or dominion over the works of our hands. You have authority. You decide what you get from God. Anything that we receive from God, anything that we reach out in faith to take hold of from God, God doesn't have to go somewhere and get it. It's something that's already been made available to us through the work of Jesus, through the sacrifice that he made for us. Folks, here's what that means. 
That means the answer for anything and everything you need is inside you. It's not out somewhere in the, in the physical realm. It's not even out somewhere in the spiritual realm. It's inside you. Everything you need, everything you can take hold of from God comes from within you. Because within you, in the, in your, inside you, the real you, the spirit of man that is housed in this physical body, that man was recreated in the image and likeness of God. What keeps people from taking hold of what God has? Well, to a great degree, ignorance. They don't know what belongs to them. But on the other side, wrong teaching and a false presentation of who God is and how God operates keeps a lot of people out of the blessings of God too. It simply comes down to this, folks. If you think wrong, you'll believe wrong. And if you believe wrong, you'll say the wrong words. And it will take you away from the things of God rather than into them. Now look back with me to a couple of places in the Old Testament. The book of Numbers chapter 13. Here's the story of the 12 spies. Israel has come out of, the, uh, of Egypt. And after two, two and a half years or so, they come from where they crossed over the Red Sea on dry land to the place where just across the Jordan River is the promised land that God has said that he's leading them to and that belongs to them. And so these 12 spies go and spy out the land and they come back, verse 25, they return from searching of the land after 40 days and they went and came to Moses and to Aaron and to the congregation of the children of Israel under the wilderness of Paran to Kadesh and brought back word unto them and to all the congregation and showed them the fruit of the land. And they told him and said, We came into the land whither thou sentest us. And surely it flows with milk and honey and this is the fruit of it. Nevertheless, the people be strong that dwell in the land and the cities are walled and very great. And moreover, we saw the children of Anak there. The Amalekites dwell in the land of the south, and the Hittites, and the Jebusites, and the Amorites dwell in the mountains. And the Canaanites dwell by the sea and by the coast of Jordan. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up to, with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. And they brought up an evil report of the land which they searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof. And all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Now, folks, with that in mind, I want you to look with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. We know what happened with the, the children of Israel. 
the congregation of Israel believed the majority report, the 10 spies that said, we can't do it. Now, two of them, Caleb and Joshua, said, we can do it. We're able to take the land. They saw the same circumstances that the other 10 saw. They saw the same conditions, same physical circumstances. But they said, we can do it. There was something that in them, not in the 10, but in Caleb and Joshua, there was something that enabled them to believe that they could possess the land, even though they didn't dispute that the people in the land were stronger than them. The 10 spies said that we can't do it because the people are stronger inside the promised land. Caleb and Joshua didn't dispute that at all. They didn't say, oh no, we've got more military might than they do. We're a bigger army than they are. They didn't say any of those things. They saw the same things. But there was something that Caleb and Joshua had that they relied on to come to a different conclusion than the 10. Now in 2 in, um, Corinthians chapter 10, I'm going to start in verse 3. It says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war after the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. He's got to be talking about spiritual warfare then. He said, We don't have a war in the flesh. We walk in the flesh, but we don't war after the flesh. And then he says, We have weapons. The weapons of our warfare are mighty through God. They're not carnal or earthly or physical, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Now, strongholds just simply means a fortress. It means a defensive position. So Paul is, by the Holy Ghost, saying, here's how you pull down the devil's fortresses. Here's how you defeat the devil's defensive positions. Now, I know there's been a lot of teaching throughout the body of Christ over a lot of years about spiritual warfare. And most of it is taught that it's a special kind, maybe a higher kind of praying. And I've seen people use it, use that idea to indicate that they're praying on this higher level where you and I, the average believers, are not. But I want you to notice there's not going to be one word said about prayer. When Paul is telling us by the Holy Ghost that we can pull down the devil's defensive positions, those defensive positions are places within us that keep us from taking hold of God's best. And Paul says, here's how you do away with them. Here's how you pull them down. Casting down imaginations. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Paul says the way you pull down strongholds is renew your mind to the word. He uses that terminology in Romans chapter 12. I beseech you therefore, brethren, verse 1, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourself a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service, King James says. Most translations translate that last part as spiritual worship. See, when Jesus said in John chapter 4, the woman at the, uh, at the well of Samaria, 
He said, God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. Well, that spiritual worship terminology has been co-opted by the Pentecostal part of the church. And those of us that are filled with the spirit and speak with other tongues, which is available to every believer, every child of God can have that. But the Pentecostal part of the church thinks that spiritual worship just means singing in tongues. But that's not what the Bible identifies as spiritual worship. Don't get me wrong, singing in tongues is a great thing to do. It brings blessing and God is pleased with it. But spiritual worship is doing something about renewing your mind. In other words, he says the devil's strongholds are going to be based on what you think or don't think. The strength of the devil's fortresses, the strength of his ability to hinder you. He's writing this to Christians, not writing this to unsaved people. But he says as Christians, as children of God, the effectiveness of the devil in keeping us from realizing or taking advantage of or receiving all that Jesus has purchased for us through his death, burial, and resurrection depends on what you think, not how you pray. Now let's insert this as a template when we look back to Numbers chapter 13. There's one main difference in the ten spies and Caleb and Joshua. What was that difference? The difference is what they thought. The ten spies saw the enemy armies of the Canaanites and the uh, Amalekites and whoever else was there. The ten spies saw those enemy armies and thought they're stronger than us so we can't do this. Caleb and Joshua seeing the same armies, same strength of the same armies, same circumstances completely. Caleb and Joshua thought God's on our side. So as a result, the ten spies who thought wrong when it came to the enemy armies versus the power of God spoke against God. They spoke doubt and unbelief. And so they didn't go into the promised land. Caleb and Joshua spoke words of faith. They said, we can do it. God's on our side. We can do it. Why did they speak faith? Because they thought. God said that the land was ours. So just as he made a way for us to supernaturally, even spectacularly come out of Egypt, he'll make a way for us to take the promised land too. So as Romans chapter 12 said, we started with verse 1, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your spiritual worship. Verse 2 goes on to say, and be not conformed to this world. In other words, don't think like the world. Don't act like the world. Don't be like the world. Be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed. What is it that transforms us? Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That you may prove. The word prove means determined by experience. That you may prove what is that good, acceptable, and perfect will of God. 
If you want to experience the will of God in your life, you're going to have to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. There is no other way. There is no other way. Now, what does the renewing of the mind do? Well, according to Paul, writing to the Corinthians, he said it's a way to defeat or pull down or make ineffective the devil's strongholds, those defensive places. Now, folks, let me give you an example of what one of those defective or defensive positions would be. A lot of the church world thinks that God uses sickness to teach his children how to be more pious or more spiritual or some dumb thing. I don't know. Well, that thinking that God sometimes makes people sick or uses sickness to teach us nullifies any possibility of being healed by faith. Because if you think that God uses sickness, you're never going to know for sure if the sickness that has attacked you is, is backed up by God's plan or his purpose. And faith begins where the will of God is known. You can't pray the prayer of faith if you think God's behind the sickness and disease that you're trying to be delivered of. Now, folks, this is, reaches a complete point of foolishness if you think it through. For example, if the people in the body of Christ that think that God uses sickness and disease to teach us, then why are they trying to get healed? Why are they trying to get well? If God's behind sickness and disease because he's trying to teach us something, why don't we pray for a double dose? Why don't we look at the sickness that attacks our body and say, well, praise God, we're on the right track. Now pour it on, Lord. But that's not what anybody does. They'll go to every doctor they can to try to get well. They'll go to healing evangelists with the idea that if we can just get somebody to pray for me, if it's the will of God for me to be healed, then I'll be healed. And if it's not, then I won't. Well, since faith is the way that you receive from God, nobody has ever received that way by just looking at the results to be able to determine what God's will and plan and purpose is. But if, on the other hand, sickness is something that the devil brings against us to rob us of the things that God has done for us through the sacrifice of Jesus, if that's the work of the enemy, and if we're convinced of that, if we've renewed our mind to that through the word of God, then it becomes a very simple thing to reach out in faith and take hold of what Jesus purchased. Because he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes or by his stripes, we were healed. Well, that's something you can put your faith on. Because the Bible says the work's already been done. Now, you can be just like the ten spies and say, yeah, but this sickness is so severe. Maybe it's an incurable thing, according to the doctors. You can say, because it's incurable, because the doctors can't help us, there's no help for us whatsoever. Or you can be like Caleb and Joshua saying, well, I understand from the doctor that it's incurable, but I've got God on my side. The Bible says God's already done something about sickness and disease on my behalf. 
And then you can become the good ground that brings forth fruit. Now I want you to see another example. Look with me to Numbers chapter 21. Numbers chapter 21. Let's just start in verse 1. And when King Arad the Canaanite, which dwell in the south, heard tell that Israel came by way of the spies, then he fought against Israel and took some of them prisoners. And Israel vowed a vow unto the Lord and said, If thou wilt indeed deliver this people unto my hand, then I will utterly destroy their cities. And the Lord hearkened to the voice of Israel and delivered up the Canaanites. And they utterly destroyed them and their cities, and they called the name of that place Hormah. And they journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to compass or to encircle the land of Edom. In other words, they went the long way around. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. Folks, this may be one of the most important scriptures in all of the, of the Bible. The soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way. You may be facing circumstances either now or in the future. You may be experiencing circumstances that are used by the enemy to bring you to, into a place of discouragement. I know that standing in faith for something for a long time means that you're going to go through many days of being discouraged. Every time you wake up, discouragement is there. I know the situation I'm in right now for about eight and a half years Every morning has, has been discouragement sitting on my chest as I woke up in the morning. But the question is not whether or not we're discouraged. The question is what are we going to do when discouragement comes? Here's what the devil wants discouragement to do for you. The Bible gives us a perfect example here. They journeyed from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to encircle the land of Edom. And the soul of the people was much discouraged because of the way... And the people spake against God and against Moses. Wherefore have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in this wilderness? For there is no bread, neither is there any water, and our soul loatheth this light bread. That light bread he's talking about is manna. Now, folks, the first three or four verses of the chapter tell about how God enabled them, enabled Israel to defeat a great army or a great enemy. They simply bowed a vow. They said, Lord, if you'll bring us into victory over these Canaanites, we'll destroy their cities. God said, yeah, sure, I'll do that. And they destroyed the cities. Now, because of the length of their journey, they get discouraged, and they tell what they believe. See, you can tell what somebody believes because of what they say. And you can tell what somebody thinks by the words that they use. So they're obviously thinking, after this great victory that God just won for us, after hearing our prayer and doing what we asked him to do, this journey is too long. And because this journey is too long, this must mean that God and Moses want us to die in this wilderness. Notice the next verse. 
verse 6. It says, And the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and much of the people of Israel died. This word sent is a very poor translation. As we've said numerous times before, Dr. Robert Young, who was one of the foremost Greek and Hebrew scholars in the land in his day, said that the Hebrew language has a permissive verb that the translators usually translated in the causative sense. Now the Bible tells us that when they come to the end of their 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, back to the edge of the promised land where they were before in Numbers chapter 13 and could have taken hold of the land but didn't because of their unbelief. Moses reminds them that God has led them throughout the wilderness and provided for them throughout the wilderness experience all 40 years in a land where there were great and serious and deadly poisonous snakes, fiery serpents. God didn't send the fiery serpents. The fiery serpents lived in the wilderness that they were traveling through. And you can't find one instance where anybody was bitten by a fiery serpent except the time that they rebelled against God. In other words, they're of the the mindset because they're discouraged. They're of the mindset that it's always going to be like this. And God wants them to die in the wilderness. And so because of the wrong things that they thought and the wrong words that they spoke, it brought them to the very death that they're complaining about because they're thinking God wants it. Much of the people of Israel died because of the snake bites. Well, what did they do? They cried unto Moses and said, we messed up. We're the cause of this. Notice verse 7. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned. They didn't say God's done us wrong because he sent the fiery serpents. They said, we have sinned. For we have spoken against the Lord and against thee. Pray unto the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. And Moses prayed for the people. And the Lord said unto Moses, make thee a fiery serpent and set it upon a pole. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is bitten when he looketh upon it shall live. And Moses made a serpent of brass and put it upon a pole. And it came to pass that if a serpent had bitten any man, when he beheld the serpent of brass, he lived. Now Jesus said, using this example in John chapter 3, he said, just as Moses lifted up the serpent of brass in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up from the earth. In other words, Jesus says, me going to the cross is the fulfillment of this type, this Old Testament type. And notice it was a serpent of brass on the pole. It wasn't a lamb. See, most of us think of Jesus dying on the cross as the lamb of God. Well, he provided the sacrifice of his own blood as the lamb, the illustration of the Old Testament sacrifice indicated by the lamb being slain. But when Jesus was on the cross, he was being made sin and death for us. That's why the bronze serpent was there rather than some other depiction of a lamb or whatever. So what happened to the children of Israel? Well, some, probably most, were influenced by the circumstances 
what they saw and the discouragement that they faced because of the circumstances. And that wrong thinking, it led them into wrong thinking, which leads to wrong believing, which leads to speaking against the things of God, which leads to destruction. And that's exactly the process that the devil is trying to use against you and me. So again, it's not a matter of, are we discouraged? The question is, what are we going to do when we are discouraged? That's the issue. That's the point. Now, the bronze serpent thing is interesting because it identifies, Moses identified that everybody that looks at it shall live. Now, there are several words that could have been used here in the Hebrew language. But the one that was chosen, the one that was used by the Holy Ghost to give us a complete and accurate record of the situation and what happened and how it happened. The word that was used is a word that identifies the intensity of the gaze. It's not a casual look and look away. It's a look at and keep your eyes on. Now, why is that important? Because the snakes are still at their feet. And that's the real question. When you're facing discouragement, that's the real question. First of all, what are you going to look at? And will you look away? A lot of people look at what Jesus did. A lot of people hear sermons on taking hold of your healing by faith. And they'll reach out in faith. But after a short period of time, they'll give up. Because they don't get the instant results or the quick results that they want to get. Now, folks, I don't put anybody down for wanting quick quick results. I always want quick results, don't you? But again, the question is, if we don't get the quick results that we want, what are we going to do then? When Jesus told the parable of the sower sowing the word, he said, he that has ears to hear, let him hear. He that has ears to hear, let him hear. Well, what are we going to hear? Romans 10, 17 says, so then faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So having ears to hear is continue to hear the word. See, the mystery of the parable is identified very easily and very simply throughout the New Testament epistles. For example, it says that when we reach out and take hold of something by faith, that we should not cast away our confidence. It says to hold fast the profession of our faith. Well, those are instructions, those are principles that make us the good ground that brings forth fruit. To refuse to turn away from the faith that you've exercised, the faith that you've extended to take hold of whatever blessing of God there is that you need at the time. It says, don't cast away your confidence. In other words, don't let the circumstances make you think differently. Don't let the circumstances change what you think. Don't let the circumstances change what you say. Hold fast the profession of your faith. Why? Because that's the way you bring forth fruit. We'll say it again, folks. What you have from God depends more on you than it does him. John chapter 15, verse 7, Jesus said this. He said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, you shall ask what you will and it shall be done unto you. 
So your prayer being answered has more to do with you than it does God. Now God's with you. He's on your side. Verse 8 goes on to say, Herein is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit. What kind of fruit is he talking about? He's talking about you getting your prayers answered. Now what's one thing that the devil will use to try to influence us to believe that our prayers are not being answered? Time. He wants to drag things out and delay things as much as he possibly can. Because the longer it takes, the more likely you or I or anybody else will be to change our thinking about what we can have and what God wants us to have. He wants us to become discouraged because of the way, because of the length of the journey. We may be on board to believe God for a month, but are we on board to believe him for a year? Well, that's what the delay of the enemy and the discouragement of the circumstances is sent to test you to see if you'll hold on for a year. Well, if we're on board for a year, are we on board for two years? The devil wants to make it as long as he can. He wants to drag it out just as long as he can. He wants you to be as discouraged as you can possibly be. Because during those times of discouragement, he'll, either, he'll even come and tell you that God's not being fair and just. He'll take your side. He'll say things like, you know you've been in faith this whole time. And God hasn't honored his word. He's honored his word with other people. But not you. Something must be wrong with you. So you might as well just give up and accept that God's word is not true like you thought it was. But the Holy Ghost instruction to us is hold fast the profession of your faith. We have to answer that discouragement. Just as Jesus answered the fig tree that didn't produce any fruit. We have to answer discouragement and all the work of the enemy against us. It may not have come as quickly as we want, but God's word's true no matter what. And if there was something wrong with me, then God would show me. He hasn't shown me. It's just the devil that's the one that makes the accusations. I was, uh, during a time many years ago when the church was facing some real financial hardship concerning the property and the building that we're in now. It was the biggest fight that up to that point in time I'd ever been in. I've stood in faith for a long time where healing is concerned. I've stood in faith for a long time where finances were concerned. And in my experience, the finances were the tougher battle. I don't know if that holds true in everybody's case. I'm not trying to tell anybody that this is how it is for everybody, but that's certainly the way that it was for me. And there were times where I would talk to the Lord and question why things were going the way that they were and what's going to happen next and all this kind of stuff. And I hate to admit it, but I was complaining to the Lord, having a little pity party on my own. Nobody else was invited. And the Lord asked me something. He said, in what part of this have I been unfaithful? 
Folks, I can't tell you the shame that came with that question. And I answered back, you've been faithful all the way through. I'm the one that's been wavering. I'm the one that's been complaining. Folks, I'm not sure this is true, but I'm guessing it to be a fact. That if God wanted to, he could find something to complain to us about us. Now, I'm not sure. But he never does. If there's something that needs to be changed, he brings it to our attention. But even then, there's no condemnation to it. But I learned something there that day. I was facing a time where I was really discouraged. And the devil was working overtime trying to get me to think wrong and speak wrong. But that question that the Lord asked me. I decided that from that point on for the rest of the time that I spend here on the earth. I would never give God any cause to ask me that question again. So that's headed off a lot that the devil could use against me now. That's one arrow that he can't throw anymore. Turn back to Joshua chapter 1. Joshua chapter 1. Notice verse 8. God's principle of success. This book of the law shall not depart out of thy mouth. Now the book of the law he's talking about are the first five books of Moses. That's all they had. So when he talks about the book of the law, he's talking about the word of God. Thank God we have more than they had. So he says, this book of the law, or insert word of God, shall not depart out of thy mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then, after doing the word, after putting the word of God into your heart, and after acting on it and obeying it, for then thou shalt have good success. Then thou shalt make thy way prosperous. And then thou shalt have good success. Notice God's not even the one that makes your way prosperous. You do that. God's simply telling Joshua that the word always works. All you have to do is do it. Now in what way are are we, through the principle identified in Joshua chapter 1 verse 8, in what way are we supposed to be doers of the word? Well, notice the first thing he said was that this word of God shall not depart out of your mouth. Now, the only way you can keep something from departing out of your mouth is to continue to say it. Because as soon as you speak the word, it's gone. So if it's not to depart out of your mouth, this is God's instruction to Joshua and to us, to anybody that wants to put it in practice, that speaking the word continually is the way to put the word of God into your heart. In other words, speaking the word of God continually is sowing the seed. It's sowing the seed. It's the way you go from wayside to stony ground. It's a way that you go from stony ground to terror ground. 
where the cares of this world come and choke it out. And it's the way you go from that to good ground. In other words, renewing the mind, the transformation that comes about as a result of renewing your mind to the Word, is speaking the Word to yourself continually. Over and over and over and over and over. And it says we're supposed to do that night and day. And the Bible calls that meditating. Eastern religions want to get you into a place where you sit cross-legged and hum till your mind goes empty. That's a short trip for most Christians. And so when you talk about the thought life, when you talk about renewing the mind, a lot of believers get real freaked out because they think of Eastern religion stuff. But folks, Bible meditation is not emptying your mind of anything. Bible meditation is filling your mind with the truth of the Word. And the Bible says, Holy Ghost is telling us, God's telling Joshua, that as we meditate by speaking the Word over and over and over again, as we meditate in the Word, the Word of God becomes a part of the real us, the man on the inside, the inner man, the real you. Now, what's the purpose of having the Word of God in our heart or in the real us? That we act on it. That we do what the Bible says is sent for us to do. In the case of the discouragement of the, of the Israelites, if they had been meditating on the Word, then they would have had something to use against the discouragement that the devil brought them. They wouldn't have allowed the circumstances to change their thinking. That's what being obedient and doing the Word is about. It's not always taking action outside of the exercise of faith. And faith is believing in your heart and saying with your mouth. How do you believe in your heart? Well, when you meditate and put the Word of God in the middle of your, your spirit, the real you, then you've got something, an arsenal to work with when the devil brings his attacks. And after doing the word, we make our way prosperous and we have good success. One translation says, instead of good success, it says, we'll deal wisely in the affairs of life. Well, you can't have good success in life unless you deal wisely in its affairs, can you? There were a lot of people that were in similar situations as Beth and I when we were working for Brother, for, uh, Brother Hagin, Kenneth Hagin. We had the privilege, and what a privilege it was, to be around somebody that not only knew the Word, but lived the Word. And I came from a place, and though our situation was different, Beth's circumstances were a lot different than mine, but we both wound up at a place in our lives. I'm not talking geographic location. But we both came to a place in our lives where we decided we wanted to put the Word of God into practice in our lives so that we could get some of the same results and, and take hold of the things that Jesus had purchased for us that the Bible said were ours. Now that was a large group of people at the time. We were part of a large group of people. But not all those people stayed with it. 
They heard the same things we heard. They were in the same circumstances and situations as we were. Some of these people were closer to the Hagans than we were. And see, not everybody takes hold of the word to the same degree. And that's what Jesus is telling us in that parable in Mark chapter 4. Not everybody's at the same place. Not everybody wants to be at the same place. Not everybody wants to give the same attention to the word. Not everybody's going to stick with it. We know of people that have entered into the ministry and because they got discouraged because the church didn't grow the way they wanted it to or whatever, that they changed their message. They went to things that they thought would be more popular with people, and in some cases it was. But they changed their preaching or teaching of the word, trying to get better results. Well, we're in our 60s now. Well, I'm trying to be nice. I'm in my 60s. She just turned 70. Anything else you want to say? No, my point is we've been around long enough to see what the effect of some of these things are. Well, what's the bottom line? What's Jesus after? When Jesus tells the story of the parable of the sower, so in the word, what's he after? What does he want to be the result? He had to have something in mind when he taught what any time that he did teach. He had to have something in mind. It's got to be something more than just information about here, here's how things work. What was he after? Well, he was after the same thing that he wants us to be after, and that is making disciples. Remember what Jesus identified as disciples. The Bible says that there were a lot of Jews that believed on him, but then he said to those Jews that believed in him, we might call those the equivalent of the people that are saved today. But then Jesus said, if you continue in my word, then are you to my disciples indeed. He didn't say that to people that would stand in the place of the unsaved. He said that to people that already believed in him. So Jesus Making disciples had to be governed by people continuing in the word. Had to be. Well, what does continuing in the word look like? I believe Joshua 1.8 is the perfect definition of continuing in the word. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein day and night. Day and night belongs to speaking the word. The rest of your time is yours. Thou shalt meditate therein day and night that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein for therein then thou shalt make thy way prosperous and then thou shalt have good success. In other words, you can only take hold of the part of the truth, part of the blessings, the part of salvation that Jesus purchased for you to the degree in which you confess it. Let me give you an example. About... Uh, six months ago maybe something like that I was praying in tongues as I normally do I was by myself at the house 
And so I had freedom to pray in tongues out loud. Nobody wouldn't bother anybody. My dog likes it. <laughs> so I'm just spending time with God. Wasn't praying about anything. Wasn't praying for anything. I was just edifying myself by speaking in other tongues like the Bible says. And all of a sudden, these words came out of my mouth. The fear is not of me. Well, I thought that was kind of strange. I continue to pray in tongues. A lot of times when something like that happens, over the years there have been times, experiences that I've had where more will come if I go back to praying in the Spirit. But no more came. It wasn't the, the first part of a message that, that the Lord was trying to get across to me. It's just what came up out of my spirit. Now, I know the difference between God speaking to me and my own spirit speaking. When God speaks to you, it's a much more forceful thing. So I knew immediately that God wasn't saying the fear was not of him. Certainly the fear is not of him. No fear is of him. Jesus always appeared to the people in the church in the New Testament saying, fear not. His message was always, fear not. So I certainly wasn't tempted to think that God was saying the fear is not of me. But I started trying to figure out what was going on, and so I'm, I'm thinking this thing through, and over, uh, I don't know, it didn't take me a whole day, but over a matter of several hours, I realized I finally came to the place where I got it settled in my heart what was going on. And that was this. Whereas believing God for this, for healing from this thing called Parkinson's that the doctors call Parkinson's, believing God for this, I came to realize, and there have been different stages in different places that I've been throughout this whole situation. There was a time where the Lord wasn't having me, uh, was really leading me away from confessing specific things about being free from, because this, this thing has all kinds of symptoms and Pretty much anything that happens to somebody that's been diagnosed with Parkinson's, then they say, well, that's a symptom of it. Whether it is or not, who knows? They don't know enough about it to, to really be able to tell. But I know there was a time where I was so overwhelmed with the symptoms that trying to make a confession of being free from everyone that I just knew about was just overwhelming. So I recognized by spending time with the Lord, I recognized that the Lord had me in a place to just believe God for the results. If I believe I'm healed from the top of my head to the soles of my feet, then that would include everything, anything, symptom-related or whatever. But then over the period of time, there have been other stages or phases of this thing where God has spoken to me or impressed upon me to make specific confessions about specific symptoms. Well, I was at a place where those symptoms had gone away. So I wasn't really confessing anything other than the general heal from the top of my head to the soles of my feet. I've got a whole list of scriptures. It's about half the Bible that I go through when I have time. But I realized what was going on that I really hadn't paid attention to before. Now, folks, I know the Bible says God hasn't given us the spirit of fear. A part of my, well, it wasn't then, so I have to back up on that a little bit. But I knew that fear is never of God. I've walked and lived in a place over the last 35 or 40 years 
where I've learned because God's with me, there's nothing to be afraid of. Like the scripture says, if God be for us, who can be against us? I like how Brother Hagin used to say that. He said, if God's for us, who cares who's against us? But I realized that there were two things that were dominating. Um, well, I want to say this right. There were, there were two dominant characteristics that I realized that were uh, present in operation when I would teach. Folks, the, the greatest manifestation of symptoms that I've ever had have been in church. I don't know why, but it's been necessary to fight a real public battle over this thing. I attribute that to the devil just trying to shut me up. I assume that's what it has to be. But I realized that there were two things that were really robbing me of joy as far as ministering is concerned. Now, folks, I love teaching the Word. I, I just love it. I was made for it. You may not think so. <laughs> but I know me when I'm not, and I know me when I am. And it's the greatest joy I have in my life. But it quit being fun a long time ago. And the reason it quit being fun is because I had to devote so much of my time and my attention to fighting the symptoms when I was in public. And it's not just in church. There have been times like weddings and different things like that that I've officiated that I'm embarrassed for the people I'm doing the wedding for because of the symptoms that everybody sees and the way that it went and so forth. However, I realized that there were two things that were in operation at that point in time more so than anything else. And that's this. I realized that the reason that I was having such a hard time in church services was because of fear and because of nervousness. Now, I never thought about this. I, and Dumb me, should have. I never thought about fear being attached to the symptoms of this thing that they call Parkinson's. But the only reason that I am afraid, it's not me. And that's what my spirit was saying. The fear is not of me. The fear is of this circumstance that I'm in, this sickness that they call Parkinson's. The fear is attached to that. That's what I can't actively control on my own. That's the part that I can't do anything about without God's help. And so when I, when I realized that, it was like a light coming on. Because I immediately began to say, I began to confess, I'm delivered from fear and from nervousness. Since that time, it's been fun again. Now, here's the point. I do have a point in this. Here it is. I believe for years, 40 years, to be free from fear. But the freedom from fear did not come until I started saying it. The freedom from fear did not come until I began to speak. And I added a whole litany of, of 
verses of scripture concerning fear to my daily confessions. But I actively and specifically targeted the fear and the nervousness. The fear that is a result of the nervousness that is a symptom of this work of the devil. But when I started saying it, that's when things changed. I remember what I said about Jesus making disciples. Jesus said to the disciples, uh, to the Jews that believed on him, he said, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth will make you free. You're not continuing in the word unless you're speaking it. What Jesus was trying to get across, the mystery of the kingdom of God, is that you are only governed by the things that you say. You are only affected by the things that you say. You are only blessed to the degree that you say what the word says about you. It's not just a matter of thinking. Thank God we can renew our minds. And folks, a renewed mind is not the mind that knows the word backwards and forwards. That's where we want to get to. But the renewed mind is the, is the mind that says, first and foremost, in every situation, in every circumstance, what does the Word of God say? You don't have to already know the answer, but to have a renewed mind, you're going to have to know where to find the answer. And once you find the answer, think in line with it, and then speak it. And that's what releases the power of God in your life to make a change. Don't just be a casual Christian that listens to the word on Sundays. Be a doer of the word that confesses the word and speaks it continually. That's when you start making strides with God. Amen? Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you so much for your goodness. Thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we counted a privilege. To be a doer of your word, we count it a privilege. To have learned the mystery, the secret. To have been initiated into the secret things of God. We believe that as we speak your word, it comes to pass. Therefore, we say that we are the redeemed of God. We say that our righteousness is of you. We say that we're free from fear. For you are with us. We will not be dismayed. For you are our God. You strengthen us. You help us. You uphold us with the right hand of your righteousness. So we refuse to fear. We say that we were healed by the stripes of Jesus. We say that your healing power. The very word of God itself is affecting a healing and a cure in us from the top of our head to the soles of our feet. We say that the word is working mightily in our bodies, no matter what it looks like, no matter how we feel. We speak truth, and your word is truth. We thank you, Father, that everything we put our hand to is blessed. We thank you that you surround us with favor as with a shield. We thank you, Lord. That no matter what happens, no matter what pressure is applied to us, the only thing that comes out of our mouth is the Word of God. 
Father, we thank you for seeing us through the battles that we're fighting, the circumstances that we're in. And Lord, even though I have spoken certain things, physical facts, physical circumstances, to try to be a help and a blessing to people that are fighting similar circumstances, by faith we say that the work is done. By faith, we say that we're free from sickness and disease. We thank you, Father, that Jesus has delivered us from the power of darkness. That means all the power and authority of the enemy. And we've been translated into the kingdom of your dear son. The kingdom of health, peace, life, righteousness, goodness, and mercy. We love you, Father. We thank you for being so good to us in Jesus' precious name.